0: and he will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready. There, prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it, just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and to say to him one after another, Is it I? He said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, Even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, If I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. And they went to a place called Gethsemane, And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand.
1: Some of you are probably very discouraged. You think that you might be the worst of sinners. Certainly, you feel like you are a spiritual loser, especially when you look three pews over and you see that person and how they have their act together, and and you only wish that you could be like them. Others of you are probably thinking that you're doing pretty well, and maybe TBC is lucky to have you here. Now, of course you're too good a Christian to say that. You know better than to say that. No one's going to do that. You you know the humble words to say, right? But in our hearts, we actually think, I'm pretty good. I'm doing all right. I hope this morning that our text addresses both of those places because I think at different times, we, we find ourselves on both sides of that. Because we're thinking about ourselves, but more on that later. Our text this morning here, as you just heard Druin read, is from Mark chapter 14, and it begins on the with the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Feast of Unleavened Bread was an eight-day festival in which they didn't eat leavened bread. It begins with the Passover meal. The Passover meal is sort of the uh, inaugural event, and this whole week of celebrations takes place, a week in a day. And it was pretty much the biggest holiday of the year. There were three big holidays where the Jews would all travel in, but this one was probably the biggest of the three. Pilgrims from all over the world would be making their way into the city of Jerusalem. The, the population would just swell, the overflowing. There would probably been people sleeping in the streets. Every available room was filled. You were not allowed to cho- charge rent to people coming in. You were supposed to, it, was, it was a big festival and money was not supposed to drive it. And so the city is just overflowing with people and excitement. And this is the biggest event of the year. And recall from last week the fact that there is intrigue afoot. The people seem to be, all these people coming in, the mobs and and hordes of people that are now in the city, are really taken with Jesus. There seems to be a thought in minds of, you know, this guy just might be the Messiah. Maybe this is what we've been waiting for. the priests and the scribes and the the, the elites, well, they're on the other side. They're thinking, this guy's got to die because he might think that he is the Messiah and that's going to get everybody in a big mess. We're all going to end up dead. But they they can't attack him in front of the mob because the people would protect him. So Judas comes, and we saw that last week. Judas goes to them and offers them a way out of their dilemma, a way to take Jesus out, Quietly, And so now it's time for the Passover meal. It's the big night. Jesus sends two of his disciples into the city. Uh, they go into Jerusalem, because that's where the Passover meal needs to be celebrated. They go into Jerusalem, and they're to follow a man carrying a water jar. Okay, what's that? That would have been unusual. It would be kind of like if I said, you know, look for the pink car in the parking lot. If you saw a pink car, you wouldn't think that was just bizarre, but there's only one pink car, right? You're not going to have multiple ones. And that was the situation here. When they go in, look, there's a man carrying a water jar. Women were supposed to do that in this culture. That was not what men did. And so they followed him. And sure enough, just as Jesus said, there was an upper room that this man or his family had. It's not clear who this is, but... Commentators speculate it may have been Mark. For we see later in Acts that Mark's family provides an upper room. Now, there were many upper rooms. That doesn't mean that it was the same one, but it's quite possible. So here they are in the upper room preparing for Passover. And as I said last week, everything here is strained. Everyone is kind of on a knife's edge Everything is tense, and yet, notice how Mark doesn't try to pull at our heartstrings. He doesn't go into a lot of explanation about things. Just like in the rest of the book of Mark, he is moving from one point to the next. He doesn't pause. He sticks to the facts. He doesn't try to dwell on the pathos, on the the passion of the Christ His purpose throughout this book and following right on through here is to show Jesus as a man of action, completely and totally focused and devoted to his mission. Jesus is the true hero. He's got a job to do, and he is focused on doing it. Now, there is far more in this text than I can do justice to this morning. But what I want to do is point out three spiritual transitions that take place in our text. Three things I think that the apostles learned or the ways that their minds shifted this night. They probably didn't get it immediately. It comes later. But I think on reflection, we're, we can see three things that altered, both in the way that the, the apostles saw Jesus and his mission, the way they understood God, and, and the way they understood themselves fitting into this plan, these shifts completely change their understanding of their spiritual place, their state, and their expectations out of life. The first shift that takes place here is that the Passover precedes the Lord's Supper. Passover is preceding the Lord's Supper. The, the, this is a familiar ritual full of symbols. They did it every year. And what we see here is a spiritual reality is now coming to pass. As I mentioned, it was probably the most important holiday of the year. But this one, the Passover, and this one, the memory of the Exodus is enshrined more clearly than any of the others. More than anything else, this event of the exodus is what defined Israel as a nation. And so they reflected on it constantly. So what is that? What, what's going on in the Passover? Well, in the Passover, it really starts with this tenth plague. The Jews were slaves in Egypt. And there, Moses, at God's command, goes to Pharaoh and demands that he release his people. Pharaoh, of course, refuses, and God sends plagues. You're probably familiar with the story. And every time there was a plague, Pharaoh would say, I'm sorry, I'll let your people go. God removes the plague. Pharaoh says, no, you got to stay. And so this goes on and on and on through nine plagues. On the tenth plague, the death angel is sent down to strike and kill the firstborn. The only way of avoiding this awful fate of the death of the firstborn in every house was that you had to kill a lamb. You would take this, it was a male lamb, you would kill the lamb, you would catch its blood, take hyssop, and they put it on the lintels of the door, okay, The, the, the three sides of the door. So right, left, and top, you covered the door jam in blood. The family in the house then went and roasted this lamb and ate its flesh with unleavened bread. This was all being done in haste because as this was being done, they were expecting deliverance. And so they ate standing up with their shoes on, dressed, ready to flee. And just as promised that night, the death angel descended upon Egypt came through the land, and all of the firstborn sons began dying. But the death angel passed over the houses that had the blood on the doorpost. And in those houses, the son's life was spared. Well, when Pharaoh's son was killed, you can imagine this caused a bit of a stir, and they didn't just allow the Jews to leave. It says they urged them to leave. Get out We don't want you here anymore. And so the Jews hastily fled out into freedom. That event from that day until now has stood as the great God-given illustration of what's going on in salvation. God with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm went in on the most powerful nation in the world and he plundered Satan's house. He went in and took his firstborn son out of Egypt. He delivered them from an unjust punishment and a labor that was arduously laid upon them for no profit of their own. And God redeemed his firstborn son and he smashed his oppressor. If you want to understand and illustrate salvation, you can't come up with a better one than that. That's the God-provided illustration of salvation salvation. And so it is that in our text this morning, what what the apostles were doing this last Passover meal for Jesus is that Jesus then takes this in front of them and equates himself with these events. In this act, Jesus is revealing himself to his disciples They were expecting the Messiah, and they even had inklings that he was the Messiah. But no one would have equated the Messiah with the dead lamb like this. I mean, the Messiah is not supposed to be killed and have his blood splashed on wood. That's not how the story in the mind of the apostles was supposed to go. This isn't what we're supposed to be doing. This is supposed to be deliverance. This is a shocking connection. And so Jesus is revealing himself as the substance that these historical events celebrate in the Passover pointed to. He is the embodiment of salvation. He, like the lamb so long ago, would be killed and would absorb that wrath of God so that his family could be passed over. They would be freed from the clutches of, of the tyrannical evil one, the power of sin and death. And so now, in this night, the apostles' eyes are being opened to the realities of the Passover. It's being transformed. No longer would this meal simply be a yearly commemoration of the Exodus. After this, it would be an as-oft-as-you-eat-it remembrance of the cross, The Passover showed that that Israel had been saved from something for something, to go somewhere, from Egypt to go to Canaan. So it is in the Lord's Supper. They would be reminded that Christ had not saved them for the here and now, but for a kingdom they did not yet see. There has been historically a lot of confusion among Christians about what is going on here. We've been conflicted for millennia. Catholicism has taught that when Jesus says, this is my body, he's literally the communion bread. To me, that seems rather nonsensical, seeing as how he's standing there. I don't see, but that's beside the point. Other people, Lutheranism has taught that Jesus is literally in these elements, not that they become him. But, that, but when in the eating of this, that, that Christ is somehow mystically united in them, and there are different ways that this is, is worked out, I, I understand that. But I believe that what we have here is a symbol, a, a, a picture of what is going on. This is symbolic. When Jesus says he was the Passover lamb, he's not saying he was a four-hoofed animal raising. But rather, he is the spiritual culmination The lambs were not the real thing. The Passover lamb was not ultimately a four-hoofed animal. It was Jesus Christ himself. He is the Passover lamb. Those were the shadows and the types pointing to him. Notice that this Lord's Supper is happening prior to the death of Christ. He's telling them that this Passover meal that they have been devotedly Doing for 1500 years was prophetic of the events that they were about to experience. So it is that the Lord's Supper, or communion as we call it, is a typological event that signifies something in the past, Christ's cross, but points us forward to a prophetic thing of what is to come, Christ's return. Symbols are only really meaningful if they denote real things. And the reality is Christ. So too, the bread and the wine, they are symbols, but they evoke in our minds that eternal kingdom which is to come, which is from Christ, through Christ, and to Christ. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. This is a transition that's happening in their minds. Because a part of this transition is this. Who is Passover for? It was celebrated by Jews. It was for the household of Israel. But Jesus says in this covenant, his blood is poured out for many. He could have said it's poured out for Israel, but he doesn't. He says it's for the many. Not for all, but for many. It's for all who will believe. For as many as received him, to them gave he power to be called the sons of God, to as many as believed on his name. This many is going to be the multitude from every tribe and language and nation and tongue upon the earth gathered around the throne glorifying the lamb who was slain from the foundation of the world. Friends, will you accept this one? Christ died for all who will accept him. Will you accept him as your Passover lamb who died in your place to absorb the wrath of God against your sin? Not just abstract, but yours and mine. That's what's commemorated in this meal. And notice that the the Passover was celebrated by families. It was for individual families. In the the Jewish tradition, you needed to have at least 10 people gathered together. And you would collect your family. It was not just for individuals. It was not just for a family. It was for the family of Israel, all those who were descendants. Now, in saying this, I'm not suggesting that we're not saved individually. We absolutely are, but... We are saved to a family, to live in a communal fashion. And that's exactly what we see in this meal. Salvation is lived out communally. And the shape of Christianity is irrevocably communal. And so it is in the same way today that the Lord's Supper is a communal event. Anyone who would try to take communion alone just is confused as to what is going on here it is a family meal and it is centered on the oldest son in the family and in the family of god that's jesus christ he is the firstborn of all creation and so just as the passover was not for just a family so the communion is not just for trinity it is for all the families all the churches that have gathered together. And as each family was responsible to carry out the rituals of the Passover, so too every church is responsible to carry out the Lord's table faithfully. Paul specifically tells us this. He says, For I received from the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that on the night the Lord Jesus was betrayed, he gave thanks and he broke it, and he said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance. Of me. This is specifically handed on from Christ to his apostles, and you see it from Paul to the church to us. And we are to carry it out faithfully, and we are to carry it out honestly. Paul connects this eating of the communion to Passover, and just as the Jews allowed certain people to participate, the circumcised, and those who were non-observant or banned from the communion table, so too Paul makes this exact same connection on the Lord's Supper. He says, do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed, Let us, therefore, celebrate the festival, not with old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. The disciples did not understand this transition immediately. That's why we have the book of Acts and and, and the letters of Paul and so on going into the New Testament. But in this meal, on this night, is revealed to them the truth that the Passover preceded the Lord's Supper and that the Passover was the, was the, the type that the Lord's Supper, what Jesus himself was going to be a substance of. That he was that Passover lamb. That he was forming a new family. Not just the family of Israel, but the family from every tribe and tongue and people. There would be many members of this family, and those members would pledge to love each other and to live lives according to the law of Christ. This Lord's Supper is then the symbol of those new realities. They are shifting from the old to the new reality of Christ. And with this, another shift is taking place that, they, that they're, they're learning at this meal. That is that trials are going to precede glory. Going into this night, the, the disciples are anticipating that Jesus is about to inaugurate his kingdom. I imagine that they were probably on a bit of a high. They're excited about what is to come. They're his trusted aides, and you can imagine what they have imagined for themselves. What is their role going to be? They're expecting glory, and they're about to get trouble. Their wishes and their dreams are about to be replaced with maturity. They're going to have to grow up. I wonder if the disciples knew what Jesus was talking about there in verse 27, when he says, "Strike! I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will fall away. Probably nodded, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And in their minds, they're thinking, What? I... You know, what is he getting, what's he talking about? Well, let me give you the context. Here's what Jesus was quoting. He's quoting from Zechariah chapter 13, verses 7 to 9. He, he's speaking specifically there. The quote comes from verse 7, but it's part of a, a, a bigger context. Let me read that paragraph to you. It says, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd. Against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts, strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. I will turn my hand against the little ones. In the whole land, declares the Lord, two thirds will be cut off and perish. One third will be left alive. And I will put this third into the fire and refine them as one refines silver and test them as gold is tested. They will call upon my name and I will answer them, I will say, They are my people, and they will say, The Lord is my God. What we see in this passage that Christ alludes to and is is pointing his apostles' attention to, and which they probably aren't really getting, is that trials are coming for the shepherd. Not not the inauguration of glory. Trials are coming first for him. He had signaled this to them earlier there, back in verse 20 and 21, that he is not taking the cup, that he's going to pass it, that he is not going to drink of this until it's in the kingdom. Excuse me, verse 25. He's not going for the glory yet. Christ is going for suffering. First, his suffering is going to be that his own apostle betrays him. Socially, he's going to be stabbed in the back, treacherously. Physically, he's going to be beaten within an inch of his life, and then he's going to be nailed to a tree. Worst of all, he's going to suffer spiritually. His own father is going to turn his face away from him. We'll be looking at that more carefully in the next couple weeks. But to suffice it to say, God's sword indeed lay heavy on the shepherd that day. But this trial is not only coming for the shepherd. If the disciples were paying attention to what Jesus said, it was a bit ominous. Because he's going to strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. And then then the sheep, he divides it into thirds. And he's saying that two thirds are going to be destroyed and one third refined. The refining there and this idea of the remnant is, is reminiscent of Israel and, and her trials and the way she was sent into exile and, and all of those things. And Israel as a whole is going to reject Jesus Christ. And a time of persecution here is coming for the apostles. But God in this, or Christ in this, has promised that he is going to preserve them. Notice that he says... I'm going to come back, and I'm going to go ahead of you into Galilee. I'm going to meet you all in Galilee again. He gives them an expectation of what's to come after these events. Though they may not see it, the good shepherd was going to be right there with them through all of this. He knows that they will be refined. They are his remnant, and he is going to hold them fast. So do not be discouraged this morning if you're here and you're feeling like you are indeed the spiritual loser and that maybe you are undergoing trials and God is testing you. Friend, you're experiencing the life of a disciple. This is what Christ had planned all along. And if it was good enough for Jesus, it's good enough for us. Remember, this is what Harry was preaching about, the coming persecution and these things. He's been preparing his disciples for this. So let me encourage you today to set your heart and mind to persevere when trials come. I don't mean to dwell morbidly on the bad things of life. I'm not recommending you get one of those books, 101 Bizarre Ways to Die. I don't know if you've ever seen them. They're Silly, they chronicle all the crazy ways that people have died. That's not what we're talking about. Rather, this is a preparation for spiritual trials, and that comes by knowing the Master better. It doesn't come by focusing on the trial, it comes by focusing on Christ, by understanding the Word of God. Man shall not live by bread alone by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. It comes from absorbing the priorities of God. What his desire, and and it comes through prayer. That brings us to the third transition that the apostles experienced that night. They learned that prayer precedes perseverance. Throughout the Gospels, the the disciples are chronically overestimating themselves thinking of themselves more highly than they ought. They seem to think that their proximity to Jesus made them spiritual elites. And this night is going to prove beyond any shadow of a doubt that they are not spiritually elite, that they are losers like the rest. What they learned this night was that dependence is going to precede power, the power to persevere, and they had that power not in themselves but in their savior they all swore you see that it's not just peter peter of course is the loud mouth he's kind of the first to jump on it i'll never deny you and jesus and they're all like oh yeah they all agree we're not going to be left behind and jesus is like oh guys you have no idea what you're saying why why the colossal and now worldwide famous Spiritual faceplant. How did these guys so totally miss it? Yeah, I don't know about you, but I feel like I've probably done this sort of thing, and I am so glad that it is not chronicled in scripture for everyone to look at. What's going on? What, what's, what's happened to them? And I think it's common to us. I think it's pretty simple they're distracted by the flesh, they're distracted. No, the disciples, uh, I was talking to Malachi about this. He had a great observation. When that storm came early in the book of Mark, and they're on the boat, the apostles are alert and aware of the fact that their death was right around the corner. They know that death can happen to them at any minute. And where's Jesus? Sound asleep in the back of the boat. He is dead asleep to the dangers of this world. Now what we find is the spiritual storm is overtaking them. Jesus is alive and alert to it. He is facing it with terror. And the apostles are asleep. They're distracted. They're they're minding. They're attuned to the things of the flesh, to the things that they can see. I sympathize with them. They're exhausted. It's been a long day. They've been going from Bethany and over and preparations and this and that, and they've had this big meal. I mean, you know how hard it is after Thanksgiving dinner to stay awake? That's what they've been through, and now Jesus is telling them to sit up into the wee hours of the morning and continue praying. I'd probably fall asleep too. These apostles are not being intentionally rebellious. They aren't like, no, Jesus, I'm not going to pray. They're not like, we're against you. They're just distracted by their belly, by their heavy eyelids. By the things that they are experiencing? This is often true of us. I would wager for many of you, your greatest spiritual enemies are not sin, but distraction. Silly, stupid things that lead us away. I can identify with C.S. Lewis when he said, The gnat-like cloud of petty anxieties and decisions about the conduct of the next hour have interfered with my prayers more often than any passion or appetite whatsoever. I don't know about you, but a lot of times it's the, you know, mismatched paint that catches my attention when I'm supposed to be praying. It's the silly things and the distractions And what you see here is the apostles are embarrassed when Jesus comes to them and says, Guys, can't you even watch for an hour with me? Don't you know what I'm going through? They're embarrassed, ashamed of their weak prayers and sleepy eyes. Does that sound familiar? Note, too, here, Christ's abandonment. Oh, my goodness. Imagine how Christ felt at this moment. Here he is pleading with his father. You see it in the most intimate terms there, Abba. People didn't pray to God that way. But Jesus is on the most intimate terms with his father. Daddy, please don't let this happen. And can you imagine how God felt? God the father who has never denied his son anything. The son who has never given him a reason to say no. He's silent. You've got to do it. And the anguish, I, I don't think the, the translation here is, is strong enough. It, what Jesus is feeling here is horror at what is to lie ahead of him. And he turns to his friends and they're sound asleep, the people that are supposed to be his supporters. Friend, can you imagine if you got 11 of the 12 apostles in the next pew over from you and they doze off on you? How much more abandoned can you get than that? You think other people abandon you? Oh my goodness, how was Christ abandoned? Jesus was human. He was no more happy about this than you or I would be, but he persevered. He set his face in the midst of these trials. He did not pity himself, and he said, Not my will, but yours. And in the middle of that, Jesus is still patient with his disciples. In the midst of the disciple, in this, he looks at them and goes, The spirit is willing. I get it, guys. I know you want to. But the flesh is weak. And that's turned into a buzz phrase. But here we find the painful reality of what that means. And so Jesus is telling them to watch and to pray so that they don't fail. They're to withstand the coming trials they've got to pray but they don't on Friday night I was having devotions with my sons and we're going through stuff and I told them that the, the first and great commandment was to love the Lord their God with all their heart with all their soul with all their strength with all their might it was kind of a pregnant pause And my son David looked at me, and he says, Daddy, do you know what squirrels use for a blanket? (laughs) Yes, David, they use their tails. Oh, how did you know? I can't believe you. What do you do? What do you do? Yes, I was wishing that David was paying attention and tracking. He's a child. He's a silly child. He doesn't track. Friends, we're often children just like that. Do I despise him for saying dumb things? Of course not. He's my son. We say dumb things to God and completely miss the point. And friends, if that's you this morning and you're feeling that way, rest assured, Christ is patient. He is loves you. He is not going to fly off the handle at your weaknesses. We need this same patience with others around us. They're going to let us down. It's not a question of if, it's when. Your patience is going to be tried by your brothers and sisters in this room. And maybe you're thinking it's not them, it's you that's letting people down. Well, friends, I assure you, Christ is not out of patience with you. Don't quit. Well, why did the apostles eventually succeed? We don't sit here today thinking of Peter as a loser, right? Peter's a hero. He's a hero of the faith. We don't look at him as a coward. He died a martyr's death, bravely. Why is it that we can look at the apostles and see them not as losers that let Jesus down at the critical moment, but as heroes because... Christ prayed for them. Christ sent his Holy Spirit to them. Christ is the one who is going to persevere in them. It's not their own power. It's not them. It's Christ. He's the one that persevered in prayer, and because he did, he is going to pass it on to them. Friends, victory in your life is not to be achieved just by trying harder. It's going to come through the power of God and a greater closeness and a dependence upon him. Please don't leave thinking that what you need to do is just try harder and pray more. No, leave here this morning with this thought in mind. It is not the worthy for whom Jesus lays down his life, but precisely for the unworthy, even the cowardly and unfaithful followers. They're the ones who need him most. Christ wants you to know that the power of his spirit to be in the fellowship with the Father and the Son as well as those dozy souls around you comes not from you, it comes from him. He has prepared the kingdom free of persecutions and trials, a kingdom where we were persevere. I have no doubt that the apostles learned the importance of prayer that night. They would never again forget it. Never again would they boast in their loyalty to Jesus Christ. They would never think of themselves that way again. So let's return to where we started. How are you doing spiritually this morning? I'll answer it this way For me, I am in Christ. So spiritually, I couldn't be better. Let's pray.